Welcome to The Divorce Podcast, a podcast that aims to address divorce, separation and co-parenting here in the UK, countering the often sensationalist way it's portrayed in the media, challenging the status quo and driving for reform. On each episode, I'm joined by experts to discuss divorce, separation and co-parenting from different angles and to give their opinions and to debate them. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor and divorce coach, co-founder of Amicable, the divorce services company, and host of this, The Divorce Podcast. In this episode, I was joined by Dr. Angharad Rudkin to discuss divorce and separation from the perspective of children. Angharad is a clinical psychologist and author with over 20 years experience of working with children and families. We explored how children of different ages and genders deal with divorce and separation and the delayed impact this can have in their later life. Angharad explained the idea of re-grieving and the benefits revisiting a separation can have for children, even years later. I was interested in how important this can be, particularly for adolescents, as re-evaluating this period can be helpful to their development. We looked at the different types of conflict and how, in all its forms, this can have a significant impact on children, and we both agreed that managing your divorce to reduce the level of conflict is beneficial. We went on to discuss the importance of including the other parent in your child's life, even if they're no longer physically present. Finally, Angharag set out some really useful tips on effective ways to tell your children that you're separating, why parents often experience guilt after they separate, and what society should be doing in future to redress the stigma that exists around parental separation. If you really loved this episode or want to hear more episodes like this, then please make sure to rate us on your preferred listening platform. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back, Angharad. Thank you very much, Kate. It's lovely to see you. This is your second appearance on the podcast and we're very grateful. So thank you. Thank you. So I wondered if we could start today by talking a little bit about children and divorce and particularly around how children behave and see divorce when it happens to their parents. So from what you've seen in your work, is there a typical way that children react or behave to their parents' divorce or separation? Well, the short answer to that is no, there's not a typical way, but I'm a psychologist, so I like long answers. So it very much depends on the makeup of the family before the split up. So if children were relatively sort of flexible in their thinking and relatively cheerful and optimistic and stress-free, then chances are they will get through the divorce with those characteristics sort of helping them out. But I think it's a fallacy that children are not impacted by divorce. And thankfully, you know, because of podcasts like this and just research getting out there a bit more, people are aware divorce, even relatively straightforward divorces, will have an impact on children because it changes their day-to-day world and anything that changes their day-to-day world affects them. So children will um, react to it differently according to their age. And there's some very interesting research coming out which shows that there can very often be a delayed effect of divorce, especially for girls. So girls may look like they're coping fine. If, let's say, their parents separate when they're eight, for example, they'll they get on with it, they keep going, they've got their friends, they hang on in there with school, everything seems to be going okay, but they hit 13 and suddenly sort of the wheels come off the wagon and they can they can fall apart a bit. And so it's just being aware of these delayed effects as well as the immediate impact of divorce. 
And people, we, I often get asked this, is there a better time to divorce as far as children and ages is concerned? I mean, most people can't control, you know, when it's going to happen. But if you could, or if you do have any element of control, is there a right time? I'm not sure there is. I'm not sure there is. I know parents who have divorced when their children are very little, so under the age of five, think that that's, you know, maybe made it more straightforward. But there's a, a very interesting research project that shows for, for men in particular, adult men, experiencing a divorce before the age of four had the biggest impact on their psychological well-being as adults. So we know that even if it's happening, you don't really have a conscious memory of it. You don't really remember living in, you know, with mum and dad in the same house, that actually the process still has quite an impact on how you think about yourself and how you think about others. And similarly, I've worked with lots of emerging adults, we call them, you know, the older adolescents, 19, 20, 21, whose parents waited till they went to uni to separate. And these young people are saying, I know my parents were trying to protect me, but now I look back on my childhood and I think, was it all fake? Was that happy childhood that I thought I had? Was that just a make-believe thing where my parents couldn't stand each other, but they just pretended they did until I left home? So even when parents are trying their hardest to kind of hang on in there together or make sure they don't split up until a certain age of their child, it will still have an impact. Let's just unpack that word impact then. So what sort of impact does it have? So what are the typical things you might see in different children of different ages? Well, when I'm working with families, I often say, you know, there's sort of three areas of our life, isn't there? There's the personal, there's the family, and then there's the work stroke school area of life. And if you just take that very simple model and think, "Mm, does divorce impact on all of those or just one or two of those, you realize actually it impacts on you across the board. As an adult going through divorce, it impacts every aspect of your life. And so similarly for children, it impacts on every aspect of their life. So things like school, they might find it hard to concentrate and focus. They might lose motivation for school works. They can't be bothered anymore. What's the point? They might have difficulties with friendships. So the things that they see kind of acted out at home, this sort of conflict, arguments, meanness, they will play that out um, in their friendships. And their sort of desire to 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 just get up and go can be a little bit dented. They can feel almost slightly depressed, you know, that I can't be bothered to do that anymore. They ask me awkward questions when I go to football coaching, so I don't want to do that anymore. Or this reminds me of being there with dad, so I don't want to do that anymore. So it kind of stops them with their hobbies and their lifestyle potentially as well. And then, you know, chuck in the financial difficulties that often come with a divorce and maybe a change of house, change of school, then that um, just adds on to it. And what's going on for a child then? What are the sort of thoughts that are going through a, a child's head when they're faced with a separating parent? What's that fundamental psychological anxiety that's being created? Well, firstly, that is my fault. So there's something about me that has meant that mum and dad don't love each other anymore or don't love me enough to want to live with me. And then also from that then comes the, and who's going to look after me? So when you're left with just one parent, whether that's through divorce or bereavement or they've never had two parents, there's always that slight sort of sense of what would happen if some mum or dad, who's going to look after me then? Which which children who are growing up with two parents involved in their life is sort of slightly more protected from that, you know, mental survival anxiety. But for most kids, it will be about them. You know, what does this mean about me? That somehow I'm not good enough, I'm unlovable, I've made this happen. And that can 
happen from the age of three up to the age of 23, almost, you know, that you never quite grow out of that sense of, if only I'd have done something a bit different, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Which, of course, as adults, we know it's absolutely not the case. It's not our children's fault at all. But children are very egotistical in general. That's how they think. And it's interesting because I think lots of parents are aware of that. So, you know, when we talk to people, lots of parents have already done the bit. It's not your fault and it's nothing to do with what you've done. So does that still hold, even though we're getting, I think we're getting a bit better as a society at tackling that because it's a message that's been around for quite a while now. But is it, does it still hold? So do we need to do something more than just tell children it's not their fault? Well, I think it's definitely a brilliant first step. And I think, you know, as we know from all the research and experiences now, divorce is a process rather than a single event. So you might have to tell your child that a hundred times and you might have to tell them that 10 years after the divorce still, you know, it can't be just a, I've told you once and hopefully that's embedded. So I, I think we are getting better, but the emotional storm of a divorce means we're just not very able to think very deeply about our children's needs because we're just trying to keep our heads above water. So what children need, as well as that clear message, it's not your fault, is they need consistency and they need acceptance and they need love from both parents and commitment from both parents. And that's that's kind of harder to do, isn't it? It's kind of easier to say, it's not your fault, don't worry, darling, it's you know, nothing to do with you. And actually act in a way that sort of implies that the children have been slightly lacking and that's why dad hasn't turned up or that's why mum's not arranging to do this. So children will still interpret it as something to do with them and them not being good enough. I think what you just said there about this being a process, I mean, that's one of the things that always strikes me whenever we talk to people going through this. And when I think about my own experience, you have to have the same conversation reframed at various ages and stages with them because they take on new information they put things together in their own minds they retrospectively go back and reinterpret things and it is an ongoing process and as much as from an adult perspective you want to think my divorce was 10 years ago I don't really want to think about it anymore you don't have that luxury when you have children because you are having to listen to them and help them reinterpret the events over and over again it's part of your life's narrative after a something as, as big as a divorce, isn't it? It doesn't go away. No, it really doesn't. And that's your child's childhood. So that's the only childhood they're going to have is the one where mum and dad divorced. So it really is something that you are going to have to revisit as a parent, even if you've moved on so much yourself and you know maybe can't bear to or are quite bored by having to revisit the divorce for your children is very important. And, and like you say, when children get to different ages, they go back and they reevaluate their life. So basically you know, a child's brain is changing massively in those first 24, 25 years of life. So every time they get into a new stage, they almost have to reevaluate life and their understanding of it and what it all means to them. And so as part of that reevaluation, they're going to look back at things that might have happened when they were three or eight and be really thinking about it. So that's why adolescence is a, it's a very tricky time anyway, because if there's a lot of reevaluation, there's a lot of figuring out who I am, how come. And if there's a divorce within that, then they're going to want to come back to it and say, well, how come that happened? How come you said that? And how come we did that? So it's having to be aware of that. And it's not children wanting to rub it in or go back over stuff or not noticing or not being interested the first time you tell them. It is about their brain changing they need to reevaluate stuff. And, and we talk about regrieving a lot of the time, you know, that with them, um, 
young people, if they've suffered a loss or a change, they can look as if they're coping with it. And then when they get to starting their own relationship or they go into their own graduation or they go into a wedding, that suddenly it comes back, this big loss that they had to deal with. And it's a big process. I'm noticing it now at the moment because my daughter's 15 and so she's just starting the whole boyfriend thing. And so I think for her, that brings up a lot of stuff about relationships. And I think it's a really, it's a, to me, it's really noticeable that now there's a lot of reinterpretation going on and it's, you know, having to have those conversations, as you say, again, and, and help them distance themselves between your relationship and how they form relationships. But I think that whole thing about teaching relationship skills is so vital and so important because I think that's what helps us as a society move forward en masse rather than just a couple of people doing it well and what have you. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, with our children, they learn mostly by watching and copying us. You know, we can tell them something a billion times, but if we act in a different way, then they're going to act the way we act. And and that's a very hard a lesson of parenting, that we've got to be the person we want our children to maybe be or be like and of course going through a divorce you know that's a massive challenge when it comes to relationship skills isn't it because the degree of negotiation and compromise and generosity and all these things you're having to try and deal with every day is really tricky and it's you know the, the thing is about parenting is we don't want to be perfect we, we absolutely don't want to be perfect i mean what kind of children are we bringing up if, if you know, the perfect parents? But what we want them to see is that when we do make mistakes, these are the ways that you can come out of it by communication, by, you know, taking some time out, by looking after yourself. So it's not about having to be perfect and never having an argument or a quarrel or a mean thing to say at all, but it's just being able to own that and um, help our children understand how to cope with it. I want to talk a little bit about this idea that there's there's a perception and certainly backed up by research. I was looking at something the other day, I think, is it Gordon Harold and Ruth Seller, who've done a lot of research on the impact of different types of divorces on kids. So the perception that, that it's not the divorce itself that, that produces the most damage, but it's the levels of interparental conflict that actually has the bigger impact. What are your thoughts around that? I absolutely agree with that. It's it's very interesting, isn't it? When you think about divorce as an event, it's like, okay, so two people who did live in the same house are just choosing to live in two different houses. How bad can that be? But so the divorce in itself, like that research showed, may not be the thing that creates the long-term impact. What can create that long-term impact is the conflict. And the other culprit is parental absence. So we know that if children are going through a, a divorce, their parents and conflict is managed relatively well, and the child can continue to have a relationship and have time with both parents, then yes, their schoolwork might get a little bit impacted. They might have a few friendship difficulties and they might feel a bit rubbish about themselves for a little while, but they will do okay. But where there's lots and lots of conflict that they see or they even hear or that they're aware of and they lose touch with one parent, we know that's then when divorce can really have a significant negative impact. And is there anything you can do if you're in a situation where you can't help whether they lose touch with the other parent or you can't obviously be responsible for the other parent's behaviour? 
what are the mitigating strategies you as perhaps the more mindful parent or the parent more able to prioritize their needs at this particular point what can you do because there'll be a lot of people who say well this is all very well but I have no control of my ex my ex is behaving in this way or that way and whether that's right or wrong that might be you know their perception of the situation so if you are that parent what can you do to try and protect your children from that harm well I think it's about keeping that parent present in your life still. So let's say for the sake of argument that dad has left the family home and he hasn't been able to see the child for a few months. It's about keeping dad's name in conversations, keeping some photos up, still telling family stories about things that happened when dad was living with them. And even though that might be the most painful thing to do as the remaining parent, and that, you know, there's a lot of seething resentment and anger there for the sake of your child still having some connection, even if it's just through words with the, with the other parent, then it just means then when times change and they do change and the other parent may come back or may be more available or may be in a position to regain contact that actually that child is still familiar with the idea of of that parent. So that's the thing to do. It'd be very easy to cut off the other parent in terms of, well, they've gone, they've made their choice, we're stuck with this, so we're going to create a unit of two. That can be this sort of clean and, and, and slightly easier decision. But for that child, we know that that will have an impact on them and their functioning, not just now, but over for the rest of their lives, really. So if you can bear to, as a parent, just keeping the memory of that other parent alive is something that you can do. Yeah, that's really useful advice, isn't it? Because it can be really difficult, but there's nothing to stop you, as you say, telling the stories, keeping the photographs up, referring to them, and just keeping the possibility of contact there, like you say, so that if and when contact can be re-established, or relationship can be really re-established, then there's that, there's the possibility. It's not some stranger that's coming back. It's somebody that's been at least mentally in the child's life, if nothing else. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we know for adolescents, especially, so for example, adolescent boys, it's very hard for them to initiate contact with their non-resident parent. You know, it's very, they might want to, they might be desperate to, they might think about them all the time, but they don't quite know how to go about and initiate that contact. And, you know, and that's tricky when a lot of parents say, well, you're old enough now to make your own choice to go see mum or dad and that's still a very difficult thing for an adolescent to do so just keeping keeping the momentum going is is a is a good plan in general because you'd think when you're with mobile phones and the way kids communicate through technology that that actually would be a slightly easier process I'm really interested to hear that it's still really difficult because I'm, I'm probably guilty of the same you know my son got his phone he's texted his dad I think all the time but I don't actually know that <laughs> I just think something and thinking Maybe I should check that there's actually something going on there. But yeah, it's it feels like it should be easier for them, not harder. But it's a thing about adolescent boys that just makes it harder for them to do the initiation. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you think if you put it in the context of adolescent boys in general and initiating mm-hmm. any so <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, true. for <laughs> <laughs> them to do. And, um, so you know to do that from someone who you are so desperate for their approval and their love. And so not getting a message back is kind of more unbearable than just not messaging in the first place. Then there's, there's a, you know, there's a lot going on. And, but the beauty of technology, it means you can have a a thread of 
communication, even when physically it's quite hard to meet. So as parents, we need to initiate that and keep that going, even if it's just, you know, inane texts about, did you see the football last night or what you're watching on TV at the moment? Anything that, you know, just means that there's some contact there and you're not expecting your teenager to initiate it each time. That's really useful. Thank you. Just thinking a little bit more about the process of divorce and the ways that we can help protect our children. Do you have any sort of do's and don'ts in terms of the timing? So, you know, people are thinking about getting divorced. Sometimes the first focus is on the divorce itself or the stuff for the adults. Are there some steps you can take when you as adults know that this is going to happen, but it's not yet out there in order to protect or bolster your children before you sort of, you know, break cover, if you like? Well, I think it's just trying at all points to put yourself in your child's shoes. Because by the time you've made the decision as a couple, you'll have done weeks, months, maybe even years of coming to terms with the fact that this relationship is done. Your child, even if they've watched argument after argument, even if they've heard the threat, will not for one minute be thinking you're going to divorce. So, it's about realizing they're in a very different spot to you both when it comes to understanding it. So it's time. It's just giving it time. If you can break the news together and if you can carry on being together while they're having conversations about it, that's the ideal because you're starting off as a united team. So, you know, mum's moving out in three weeks time and blah, 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 you know, that we can have conversations all together in the meantime. If that's less possible because it's been a very sudden breakup, then it's still trying to give your child a slightly united front because for that child you are still the only mum and dad that they're going to have in this way so still working together as a mum and dad even if you don't love each other anymore is is very important i mean the the emphasis on legal and financial proceedings straight away kind of turns divorce on its head doesn't it it means that we're doing all the emotional stuff way down the line because the first bits that we're trying to do is sort out who's living where who's paying for what and for children the emotional bit has to come first you know it has to be giving them time to deal with the big shock and then thinking about the practicalities I was going to just say, interject there and say, what about the voice of the child? We hear a lot now about the voice of the child. What does that mean and how involved and at what age should children be in, in these sorts of discussions? It's, it, it's really interesting when we talk about the voice of the child and listening to it, because I think a lot of parents assume that means that children therefore should have a view and make a choice. And actually, when we talk about the voice of the child, we're not saying you should therefore turn to your child and say, and where do you want to live and who do you want to live with and when do you want to go there? It's more about just being available to them and being able to listen to them at whatever point they need to talk about the stuff that's coming up for them. So even when, for example, if you're the dad and you're the one who stays at home and mum leaves the family home, it might be that even though you're physically present a lot of the time as a dad, you're so preoccupied with all that's going on that you're just not available for your child. You know, So they come home from school and they're chatting to you and before you know it, you think, oh, I haven't listened to a word they've said. It might be that you've kind of forgotten to arrange stuff for the, your, your child's school trip. And, and that actually, even though physically you're available, psychologically you're, you're not that available so it's being aware of that as well for our children and really understanding that we've got to just give them time and we've got to work so so hard to clear the rubble from our mind even if it's just for a quarter of an hour a day just so that we're very much there with our children can suss out how things are going for them and really feed into sort of their version of 
what's going on. It's interesting, you know, you say even if it's just for 15 minutes a day, because as a, a working parent and a, alone or a single parent, that's no mean feat, is it? To just even have 15 minutes a day. And I work, I'm a lone parent, it's tough. It's really tough to be psychologically present, as you say. So what can we do as parents to try and improve our emotional availability? Are there things that we can practice or focus on? Or what are the tips for, you know, making ourselves more available to our kids? Well, the the first thing is being aware of it. You know, that's the first part of the battle is being aware of the fact that actually even when, you know, I've stopped work and I'm there with my kids all evening, I actually don't quite know what the day's been like. I don't even remember what we did. So being aware of that can be really, really helpful. When we were working outside the home, you know, a good tip that I used to talk to with parents about would be that as soon as you put the key into your front door, you're removing your work hat, your whatever else hat, and you're entering the door as an available and present parent, even if you know you've then got a work call again in an hour's time. That one hour, you're there. We've got less of that physical kind of boundaries now that we're home. So when you leave your workstation, wherever it is at home, you know, two minutes before your kids come back from school or before you've got to go and get them, you imagine putting a different hat on, right? I'm putting my mum on or I'm putting my dad hat on and I know I've got all these things I still need to get done but for that just first few moments that I'm with my child I'm just gonna ask them genuinely how are you how is your day and then you know as the evening goes on and you've got things to do and there's demands and then at the least opportune moment your child comes to you and say mom I need to have a chat with you or dad something's on my mind if you can't attend to them there and then say tell you what here, I just need another 20 minutes to get this done. And then I promise I'll come back and we'll chat about it. And, and most children can can manage that fine. It's when they get the, not now, later, that's when it's tricky. So kind of be very clear about what time it is you're going to be able to do it. And if you can't do it today, say tomorrow. You know, tomorrow at 3.30, when you're back, that's when we're going to have a talk about this. And then it's just trying to keep focusing on your child when you're with them rather than the thoughts in your head. Our mind chatter can get very loud and it can be very distracting. Whereas actually the, the greatest source of joy in our lives actually are more outside of our heads. <laughs> there are the external things that are happening around us or the views that we can see or the chatter that's going on or the food that we're eating. And yet, you know, we all tend to just spend most of our time in our heads. So it's just about getting quite good at turning that spotlight out. So I'm focusing what is outside of me as opposed to facing inwards and thinking about all those thoughts we've mentioned the the c word conflict quite a few times through the podcast today and i just wondered if i we all know what conflict means in terms of when it's shouting at each other and that kind of stuff but are there other forms of conflict that are particularly sort of noticeable in a divorce or unhelpful for children because you know you do hear about some parents where they might not have very much outward conflict so as in you know typical rows or shouting but there could be conflict in other ways and I just wondered if you could expand a little bit about that and tell us about the harm that does. Absolutely well we know I mean obviously the physical violence is very very detrimental to children it's very scary for them very threatening for them but what we kind of think about a little bit less is the seething sulking silences. Parents think because we're not shouting we're not damaging our children but I'm not going to talk to her for the week or I'm not going to talk to him for four days. And for children growing up in that kind of seething, bubbling anger, which is not talked about, nobody's actually expressing it, so therefore you can't really react to it. It's very, very 
damaging because they're powerless. You know, if if two parents are shouting, a child can walk out of a room and just say, oh, mum and dad, just stop it. You know, but if no one is actually saying anything and there's just an atmosphere, it's very hard for a child to own that and just say, this isn't pleasant, actually. I, I want this to change. So you become very unable to do anything. So I think it's about being very aware of that as parents, if you are more of the quiet sulkers and that's how you deal with conflict it's not great for anybody either but the bickering you know as adults we've probably all got friends who you know as couples they bicker and bicker and it's actually quite exhausting and irritating being around people who bicker so even as adults it's like oh I don't really mean it and I didn't you know it's only just banter or whatever actually bickering can be really make a child feel very awkward irritated and and quite resentful really as well so there's conflict in day-to-day life all the time what research has shown is how you resolve that conflict that's important but when it comes to warring parents who are on the road towards separating or have separated it's just being aware that any conflict is going to have an impact on your child and that's not to beat yourself up about it but more don't kid yourself that they don't notice or that they'll be fine or we haven't actually said anything nasty to each other or we haven't even raised our voices so therefore it's not going to impact on the child it will and you know you just need to help prepare it once once you're ava- you know available and able to well you mentioned there this the the parental guilt and i guess that's one of the is it a downside? I know it's one of the things that's hard to hear, isn't it? When a divorce is going to go ahead anyway, and yet you know on the one hand, as you started by saying, that divorce will impact a child. We've talked a little bit about mitigating strategies, which is always very helpful and useful to hear. But what do you say to parents who are you know, really laboring under the burden of the guilt of a divorce and how because that's no way to parent, is it? You've got to be on your A game to parent. If you are so subsumed with the guilt of the divorce, how do you help people out of that hole? It's really hard. And guilt is, I mean, it's just one of those horrible emotions, isn't it? Because it doesn't make you do anything. It, it just eats you up from the inside, doesn't it? You know, it's just just a way of, sort of punishing yourself. And it's so, it's so hard when you're in that loop of, I'm just going to carry on being awful. It's being able to step out of that thought cycle and just say, okay, you know, most people who divorced did not sign up when they got married and agreed to have children together. Most of them, it was the last thing that they were thinking about happening. So most people find themselves in a situation when they don't particularly want to or choose to be there. But that actually then it's making the best out of the situation that they are in. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. As I say, you wouldn't want a perfect parent, but it's just about being good enough. And so if you've had a particularly ratty day that you go into your child's bedroom at the end of the day and say, you know, I'm sorry about being ratty today. It's just been a bit of a stressful time. Or just being able to be aware of what this feels like for my child and therefore what do they need from me. So that's all you need. So rather than say, it's like with the spotlight, rather than focusing on how guilty you feel and how messed up and oh this is it for life I've ruined their life actually thinking okay I've got them here right now with me and what can I do to make this day for them just a little bit nicer a little bit better focusing on the here and now rather than getting caught up in cycles of guilt that just as I say they just eat you up from from the inside really um let's move on and talk a little bit about your book so you've um You've co-written a book with Ruth Fitzgerald called The Split Survival Kit, 10 Steps for Coping with Your Parents' Separation. Who's the book aimed at and what is the premise of the book? 
Well, the book is aimed at children probably seven to eight-ish to about 12 to 13. So that middle age group that authors tend to forget. There's quite a few lovely books there for the sort of five and unders. And then there's books for sort of older teenagers. But this middle section where actually, you know, the average age of a child when the parents separate is 10. So this is like slap bang in the middle of our age group. But it's also an age group that are more independent readers. So they will tend to go off and, and, and find books that they want to read by themselves rather than just reading the books that parents get. So we thought, well, for lots of different reasons, this is an important age group. And I always want to fill that gap between the research and the public. You know, you've got all these amazing academics doing this incredible research and millions of pounds being ploughed into fantastic studies. And we get to hear very little about them as a public. So it's trying to interpret that research evidence for people and for kids. So it was using all the evidence out there on, you know, kids who manage to get through it a little bit easier or what helps them when they look back from being adults. So pulling all of that together, but just making it very practical as well. So we wanted it to be about a toolkit and it's a journey, you know, it's very much about this is a journey that you're on. This is a journey that you probably never thought you'd be on, but don't worry, we've got these, you know, these tools that you've got in your toolkit that you can use now and over, you know, the next 10, 20 years to help you get through it. And it uses evidence-based ideas from lots of different therapies and also lots of different studies just to help children get through, you know, the separation of their parents and all the stuff that comes with it. So we've got chapters on, you know, how do you tell people that your parents are separating? And, you know, when you're seven, it's very different to when you're 11. You know, it could be very embarrassing when you're 11. So, oh, God, mum and dad are separating. Uh, whereas when you're seven, you might just go into the playground and say, oh, mum's got a new Shout house. Shout out, and- yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, your awareness of your own feelings. We've got a lot about emotional coping skills, emotional management, and also sticking true to yourself, because we know, you know, from lots of different research across the board, that if you're true to yourself, then you'll get through most bumps and scrapes of life. And it's making that sort of practical for kids. So actually, who are you? What do you stand for? What's important for you in life? And if keep hold of those, and then, you know, and be very clear to your parents about what is important to you and, you know, what your values are. And then you've got more chance of living by them. And then that's got a you know, better outcome for you. So trying to weave in all these different psychological theories and ideas. And Ruth Fitzgerald, the children's author, and she's just fantastic. You know, her the way she writes for children is incredible. So hopefully it's very engaging and slightly humorous at times as well. It sounds brilliant. It sounds like a must purchase for anyone who's got kids and is divorcing with kids of that age. I'm interested in what you say about the fact that there are these great resources and there are some fantastic um, research projects that have been done and we do know a lot more. And yet you're right. It's very hard. And we get asked this all the time. It's really hard for people to know, you know, what, what is good information? Where do you get it from? What should you say and do, you know, with kids of certain ages? What needs to happen in our society in order to get, I don't know, get the sort of best information to parents who are going through this out to them at the most appropriate time? So what are the policy changes? What do the government need to do? What do we need to do as a society to to get better at this? Because it it strikes me this is not going to stop. We're not going to not have divorce. We're going to have divorce. It's here to stay. It's part of how we run our relationships. We're getting older. We're having more relationships. The likelihood of divorcing is higher than ever in some senses. What can we do to improve how we end relationships and move on and protect our children if that's what happens? 
Well, I think it starts at school and all of the emotional management stuff that they're starting to teach at schools now, because, you know, if you've got more skills up your sleeve about how to deal with your own feelings and how to understand and recognize feelings in other people, you're going to get through it a little bit easier. But I also think parent training, you know, it's we should all the moment we get pregnant, just all of us have a course on child development and a course on parent training because there's so much evidence out there about how to be an okay good enough parent and some of it is just wonderfully practical and simple to do and yet we just don't have that translated for us so I you know I think parenting throughout a divorce is parenting in extreme circumstances so you're going to need to have some pretty good skills up your sleeve and unfortunately what we don't have in research is a kind of a longitudinal studies of families pre-divorce and then what happened afterwards? We only tend to come in and study it once the divorce has happened, and you know, and trying to then retrospectively figure out what happened before. But in general, in 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 life, you know, greatest the predictor of future behaviour is past behaviour. So we know that for parents, the kind of parents that are going to be after their divorce is going to be the kind of parents they were before they divorced, probably. And if that wasn't optimal, then how can we help parents make it optimal? So really just information, parenting information, child development information and emotional management skills, I think would be the three biggies. And for me as well, I have this big sort of bugbear about parenting and co-parenting are different skills. And yes, you need to have parenting skills, but co-parenting skills are different because you're not working in the same contextual environment anymore. And your relationship with the other parent is different than some of the glue that held it together, some of the affection, the love you know, the romantic side of things or the, you know, the intimate side of things, that's gone. So you're, it's like you need to replace that glue. Otherwise it's two plates grinding against each other. And I guess I'm quite interested in how we teach good co-parenting skills as opposed to just good parenting skills. I'm really kind of keen on that area. And it'd be, it'd be lovely to see some research around that kind of space as well, because it's, it's affecting more and more people, particularly as we are in cohabiting relationships a lot of the time which are more likely to break down and therefore there are many more children you don't have to have married or divorced parents to be a child of a separated parent there's there's so many and I think that's such an interesting distinction because you're right it is two completely different skill sets it's like being at work and having to work on a project with someone that you really like and get on with and you've got shared goals versus working on a project with someone who you know, you might have lots of very negative feelings towards them. And, and there's quite interesting research around the more, um, what they call the sort of destructive emotions like anger. And they're, you know, anger is very hard to get over to, to, to be able to cooperate with somebody. So it is, it's, it's a very different set of skills. It's more about teamworking, it's more about a shared goal, and it's about a shared concern. So rather than being concerned for one another, you are concerned for your child. You might not give a monkeys how your ex feels, but still got to work with them for the sake of your child so so yeah a very a very different set of skills and hopefully the researchers it becomes more sort of nuanced we can start pulling apart the different outcomes really and what we can do to help inform parents to, to help them through that bit well look it's really lovely to talk to you and I could go on and on and on because it's just so fascinating do you have any final tips or pieces of advice to people who might be listening and who are you know either at the beginning or going through a divorce in terms of what they can really do to put their children front and center of everything they do well I suppose really our children I know it sounds a bit cliched but our children will teach us what we need to know you've just got to have your antennae up and your eyes open and the time to watch your children and be there with them to figure out what it is 
they need. So just, you know, as we've talked about in this podcast, I suppose mindfulness, really, just being in the moment with your child, just being available to them. It doesn't have to be all the time. And just seeing how they're acting and how they're talking and what do they need from you. And that means then it's so much easier to put their needs first rather than you thinking, if I read 20 books, maybe that will give me the clue. Just read your children. They'll tell you what they need. That's brilliant. Thank you. Where can people find out more about you, Ang Harrod? Well, I am on Instagram as Dr. Underscore Redkin. And I do lots of work with only mums and only dads. So maybe you can get some information about me there. And where can people buy your book and Harrod and find out about it? Well, they can get it through all the usual channels. It's called the Split Survival Kit, and it's a toolkit for children on how to cope with the separation of their parents. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. And of course, you can find out more about me. I'm at Kate underscore daily. You can hear about new podcast episodes by following at divorce underscore podcast. And if you enjoyed listening to Ang Harrod and want to hear more, you can download and subscribe to the podcast by visiting the divorcepodcast.com. Thank you so much, Ang Harrod, for joining us. And thank you as well for listening. Mm-hmm.